I don't know how many of you, anybody claustrophobic in here? Uh, I was really claustrophobic as a child. I still struggle with a little bit of claustrophobia. That's, you know, being in this, you know, this, this small, tight place and with not real sure how you're going to get out, you know, if you needed to get out or whatever. And, 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 you know, some people are scared of crowds. There's a phobia of crowds. And, and you know, and I don't have a problem with crowds unless there's overcrowding. And when, when you're just, you know, kind of shoulder to shoulder and it's just like, you know, if something happened, I can't, I can't get out of this kind of thing. Uh, well, this is, this is the kind of stuff that's happening to Jesus. Jesus' ministry has grown after the five stories that we just finished with Mark. And, and we see how each one of those is showing the, the authority of Jesus and how this tension this tension just continued to mount with every story to the point that the Herodians and the Pharisees, they've joined together in order to destroy Jesus. And it's like I said in class, believe it or not, things are going as planned. <laughs> because the one who is the rider on the clouds, he must, he must be crucified and exalted to the right hand of God. Now, let's go ahead and let's get into our text in Mark chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 7. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had disease pressed around him to touch him. And let's just stop right here. Because what we see is the popularity of Jesus has, like we say, it has grown. And it's like, well, why is Jesus getting in this boat and trying to go across to the other side? Because he needs a retreat. He needs some time alone. He is the Son of God. He is also the Son of Man. He is the human one. And it just shows all of us that there are times, even in ministry, it, that, that things can overwhelm us. And there's time we have to look at ourselves and say, I just need a break. And Jesus was saying, I just need a break. But the crowds wouldn't allow it. Right? And the crowds didn't care. In fact, if you look at the text, he tells us why there is all this great crowd. We can look at this and say, wow, this is great. But then you read it and you realize they're coming to Jesus because of what they had heard he had been doing. What he had been doing. What had Jesus been doing? He had been healing the sick. He had been casting out these evil spirits. They were concerned about their own needs. Because you see, that's what crowds do. So before Jesus had come and he would, he would touch the sick. But now we see that the crowds are rushing on Jesus. It's a mob mentality. It's like this violent rushing in order to touch Jesus 
themselves. And once again, we see the crowds. And just because they have grown in multitude does not mean that they are disciples of Jesus. In a time when there was no cell phones, there were no uh, social media, there was no new news outlets, Jesus now has a crowd that spans about 150 miles. And it just shows you the popularity of what Jesus has been doing. Now Mark lets us in on this clue as to what the, why they are there. He says it's what they are doing because the crowds are a paradox. We can read through Mark and probably some of you have read it just like me. Read it through the years and you just see the crowds and go, wow, look at Jesus. He was amazing. Look at these multitudes. The crowds are a paradox. They are a paradox. They are not concerned with who Jesus is. They are not concerned with what Jesus has come to say. They are only concerned with what Jesus can do for them. Let's just keep going. Look at verses 11 and 12. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Here are the demons. What are they doing? They're falling prostrate before Jesus. They're saying, you are the Son of God. They're the only ones who are acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God. And we see that they're bowing before Jesus. And, and don't, don't get overwhelmed with or feel sorry for the demons. Because here's what, something you need to understand about the demons. They're not pleased to see Jesus. You know why they're not pleased to see Jesus? Because what they know Jesus can do. What they've heard that he does. What does he do? He casts out demons. He casts them out of the very humans that they have been in control of. That they have oppressed. And they know Jesus is supreme. Jesus is supreme. And here's the question I have for you. Can we be the same way? You know what I mean? Many people, they look for a church for selfish purposes. We, we only want what Jesus can do for me. Okay? What you can offer me. This is the way we look. People look for churches. Well, I'm trying to do what's best for me. And it depends on what that, that connotation is, of course. I remember several, several years ago, a uh, preaching mentor of mine, and we were talking about these churches, and there are a lot of churches at that time, they were building these family life centers and these gymnasiums and things of that sort. And, you know, we were saying, well, you know, you can't ignore that these places are seeing growth. Uh, and, and we talked about it more, and we said much of the growth, not necessarily all of it, but much of the growth that was happening was coming from people leaving other churches and coming there. And he said something that I've never forgotten, and, and this is what he said. He says, if people will leave their church to come to your church, 
because you've built something new, they will leave you when the next church builds something even better and greater. And folks, that's not against building programs. It's not against, you know, making things better. And think that's not what that's about. It's, it's saying this is a crowd mentality. This is the way the crowds think. They're always looking for what is better for them. So why are you here? We have a crowd. So why are we here? And try not to misunderstand what I'm about to say. And it's easy to misunderstand what I'm about to say. So I'm going to try to be careful here. Some people could care less about Jesus. They could care less about, about the church until something major happens in their life. Some kind of crisis, some kind of, you know, uh, major health issue or whatever it is. And then, and then suddenly... And, and again, I don't want you to misunderstand because I won't, listen, God wants to hear from you. If he hasn't heard from you in years, he wants to hear from you, even if that's the thing that makes you talk to him. Even if you've been living in sin all of this time, listen, he wants to hear from you. What, what I'm asking is this, is that when the crisis is over, do you still want Jesus? Do you still want to be with his people? That's the real question. The people in our text, they're coming to Jesus because they had an emergency. They had people who were diseased. They had people with, who, were, who were possessed by demons. But they were more interested in what Jesus could do rather than who he was. And what the things he did actually pointed to about himself are we interested in the person of Jesus in who he is or because I need him because there's some kind of major thing happening in my life let's keep going so we keep reading. Let's read verses 13 through 19. He says, And he went up on a mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, uh, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And we read this and we go, Bohorim. We just have no idea what's just been said. Jesus moves from the sea. He passes through the, the sea up on a mountain. A great crowd, the great crowd now has been narrowed down to those who have been offered a personal invitation from Jesus. There is a distinction that has now been made. He just talked about the crowds, and now we're going to learn about disciples. 
the crowds had been following Jesus to be healed and to see a miracle, but the twelve have come to be with Jesus, look at it, to be with Jesus and to serve him. Do you see the difference? And what's really cool, what is so cool, is he said that he appointed these apostles. And this word appointed is such a big word. We talked about this in class, and we just can't develop it like we did in class. But listen, it means to make or to create. He created 12. He made 12. It is the same verb that is found in Genesis 1 and verse 1 in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. It is creation language. The 12, folks, they represent the new creation. They represent what Jesus has come to do for humanity. As we see here in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You see the language. You see the language. Now, this isn't about what they could do for Jesus. Listen, oh, this is so important. This is not about choosing these 12 because Jesus just needed all their help. Jesus calls them so that he could make something in them so that he could create in them they are made to be with Jesus and to carry out the good news we talk about the disciples and the word disciples simply means learners we, we've talked about this before but many fail to realize that discipleship first is relational before it's ever missional. Okay? And what I mean by that and what Jesus is pointing out here is we first must be people who are going to be with Christ. Okay? And so the crowds, the crowds have shown that there is a difference between hanging around Jesus and those who have come to be with Jesus. Those who are hanging out, they had expectations. The twelve were created to be transformed by his presence. And we can look at this and we can ask ourselves, here we are in a group. Have we come to hang around with Jesus, hang around with people of Jesus, or have we come to be with Jesus? And what we've just done with the Lord's Supper, that is a big part of it. That is a big part of it, if we truly understand it. But here's the thing about the 12, they struggled. And the reason they struggled is because they're human. But here's what we do learn, is they continue to stay with Jesus. They continue to be with him, even though they didn't quite understand. And at times we're going to say, are they ever going to learn? <laughs> oh, you just wait. You just wait in a couple of weeks. You're, you're going to be like, How, what is wrong with these people? Of course, it's easy for us because Jesus' death and resurrection and exaltation has already taken place. But for them, this is something that was very difficult. What we know about the 12 is they're not biblical scholars. They are not heroes among the Jewish people. They have never done anything special in their lives as far as we know. 
they are not chosen for their abilities. They are not chosen because they have a great influence in, with the people in society. They are disciples and they are human. The twelve were chosen and they were taught by Jesus. And this idea of being appointed, it comes to Moses and Aaron and the special calling and being, being called to, be, to come and to lead Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 12 and in verse 6. But while we will never be a part of that original 12, we need to understand that we too have been called. That God has come and he has made something in us. That we have been called by name. Now, in order for us to really see this, we need to go a little bit further into history. And we need to go to Ephesians chapter 1. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. So here in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is in prison when he writes this letter. And he opens up with this poem of praise. And, and if you could see it in the Greek, it is just this, it would drive some of you crazy, but it's beautiful. It's this one long run-on sentence for several verses. And, and, it, and they're praising God for what he has done through Christ. So here in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And when we are able to to pull back from this book and get a better understanding of what it's about, we realize that this is a hyperlink. And it hyperlinks us to Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3. Here was what was promised to Abraham. This comes right after the scattering of the nations. They just fell one after the other. You got Adam and Eve, and then you got Cain and Abel, and then you've got, you know, the flood, and then they're just messing up again, and all of this kind of thing. And it's like finally God is going to have this plan. And, and, and he's going to use the seed, the descendants of this group of people who begin with Abraham. And it's through this seed, it's to bring them back to its original purpose in Genesis chapter 1 and in verse 28. The families of the earth are to be blessed through Abraham's seed. He represents a new Adam. He represents a new humanity. And he will bring the seed that will come and that will crush the head of the snake. Which is the fall. And what he says here in Ephesians is every spiritual blessing, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Every spiritual blessing, it comes through Christ. And if you were to read the rest of Ephesians, you realize this whole letter is about making a new covenant family with both Jews and Gentiles with the nations, just as prophesied in chapter 12. But look at verse 4. We're still in Ephesians. And he says, even as he chose us, listen to that wording, 
He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul uses a word here that had only been applied to Israel. It's the word chosen in, Genesis, in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6. And what he had spoken about Israel, he now speaks to us. And he says, you are chosen people. You too have been made. You too have been created by Jesus. God has chosen those who are in Christ, is what he says here. Now, is there anything special about Israel? Why they are chosen? Uh, were, were they just this great and, and wonderful people? Listen, you, you... No, they were not. They received the love and the mercy of God despite themselves. And this is very, very much like, we, like in Ephesians. If you look at Ephesians 2 now, verses 8 and 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that anyone may boast. When he just said here in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6, he says, you are chosen. Listen to what he says right after these next two verses. He says, it is not because you are more in number than any other people that Yahweh has set on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and, and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. And the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, and he has redeemed you from slavery, from Egypt, from Pharaoh. Are you starting to see the parallels? God didn't choose Israel because of what they could do for him. He didn't choose them because of their value. He chose them based on his love and his faithfulness. Does anyone remember those days on the playground and, and you start choosing teams, right? Uh, and, and the way these things were chosen is, uh, and depending upon what you're playing at the particular time, uh, but, but what it was based on is who is the tallest? Who is uh, the fastest? Who's the most athletic? Who's the most popular, right? Here's the thing, Jesus, Jesus doesn't choose the way we choose things. That's not how this thing works. In fact, let's go back to chapter 1 of Ephesians. I want you to listen to this. Oh, this is so good. Just, just listen. Just listen. He says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who in is the guarantee of our inheritance until we have acquired possession of it to the praise to his to the praise of his glory I don't I do not claim to understand everything about predestination and being chosen before the foundation of the world I think if we really understand it it's got to come out of the first testament uh, it's difficult to grasp what I do know is that I have been adopted into the family of God. That I have been redeemed and that I have been forgiven because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's not because of who I am. It's not because of what I have done. It is simply based on the love of God. And get this. The chosen of God, they have a new purpose. We go back to chapter 2 again here in Ephesians. And right after he says, we've been saved by grace and not of works, he says in verse 10, though, listen. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He says, even before... I made that choice to trust Jesus. He says, he already had a mission for me. And for some people, it may take years before they really realize what it is, that mission that they have for Christ. But I can assure you this, that if you are a disciple of Jesus, that you have been chosen for a purpose. Are you seeing the parallels with the 12? Now, now the 12 are unique. Listen, they were with Jesus. They were chosen by Jesus and sent out specifically for a purpose. But we are also to see in the 12 the idea of discipleship. We're to see what that means and what that looks like. It's people who want to be with him. It's people who are called for a purpose. And we're not just the crowds who are there wondering, well, when's Jesus going to do something for me, right? So we have been given this unique mission. And just as the 12 would be transformed in the presence of Jesus, so are we. I want to read these last few verses and then we're going to close. In Ephesians 3, we begin in verse 14. He says, for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Listen to that. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height 
and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Look at chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse 8, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You see that? It's not to come see what Jesus can do for me. I've come. What's pleasing to him? Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is, is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For, therefore, for anything that becomes visible is light. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we just, we have read some of the most powerful passages and, and what they speak to us. Father, may we be here this morning not simply for selfish means, not simply for all that you can do for us, but Father, just because of, of who is your son, who, who you are, Father. And Father, we know that this mission that you have prepared for us, that your spirit has now come, he has enjoined those who have put their all-out faith and trust in you. And we know, Father, that you will lead us and you will guide us in that way. Father, you know we struggle. We're human. We get distracted. We don't understand. Father, help us never to lose faith. Help us to never stop following you and just continue to stay with you. Father, we thank you for your son. We can't, thank, we can't sit and thank him enough for all that he's done for us. And it's for that reason, Father, that we, we come and we offer up this prayer with great confidence and great love and praise and devotion. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.